some of the things I've got in my notes tonight have to do with what that song was about. Moses and the rod. I want to talk tonight about the sovereignty of God. About letting God be God. You know, if we really knew God the way we should, and if we really love God the way we should, we'd be content to let him be God. But much of the time we're not content to let him be God. And as uh, the girls were sharing, at times we want to help him out when he doesn't uh, come through when we think he should. And that's another thing I'm going to be talking about tonight. That is uh, God's timing. Because that's tied in with his sovereignty. We're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God in primarily in the life of Joseph. Although we're also going to be mentioning Moses. But I want to begin by quoting a few verses out of the book of Isaiah. There are many, many passages. In fact, the whole book of Job almost deals with uh, God dialoguing with Job and Job's friends uh, and all that Job is going through, God dialoguing with them about his sovereignty, about uh, why he should be allowed to do what he wanted to do. I think God argues a lot with mankind about that. Robin was saying she doesn't argue with God. I argue with God sometimes. I ain't never won an argument yet, but I still argue with him sometimes. Because after 35 years in ministry, I still have struggles letting God be God. So the things I share tonight, I'm going to be preaching or teaching to myself as well as to you. And I'm ministering out of a certain weakness, which all of us do all the time. Uh, anyway, I want to read these verses out of the 40th chapter of Isaiah. When God's raising, through Isaiah, God's raising this question. He's... He's saying, why do people challenge me? Why won't they let me be me? Verse 13, who has understood the spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Who is it that thinks he's big enough to tell God what to do? Well, we all do. He goes on to say, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? And who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Obviously, God's being ironic here. He's being cynical, just as he was many times uh, in the book of Job and many other places where men and women were believers in him refused to really let God be God. Now, part of that we do out of ignorance. Part of it we do out of rebellion. But the truth is, nearly all of us, one time or another, decide that we know better than God knows, and that's the reason we try to help him out. We talked about that once before, about how we try to be God's little helpers. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 37 now, and we're going to look at uh, God's dealing with uh, Joseph. And in those chapters, uh, in the story of God's dealing with Joseph, there are a number of chapters, beginning with 37. We're going to see God's sovereignty at work. And I trust we're going to learn how to let God be God. In the story of Joseph, we find God's sovereignty expressed in four ways. These are the four points of my message tonight. First of all, we see his sovereignty expressed in God's choice. God chooses whom he wants to choose for whatever he wants to do. And that causes a lot of people a lot of problems. A lot of problems. God chooses a lot of unlikely people. Unlikely brothers and unlikely sisters. Have you ever seen some man or some woman or some person in ministry or some person being used of God and you're just absolutely sure God made a mistake when he chose that person? <laughs> I know a lot of people like that. But you see, God didn't ask me when he chose them. In fact, I'll tell you one of the biggest problems I have. It isn't just that. It's just that, that when I... Uh, come up against someone who doesn't like me or I come up against someone who's being used of God who I don't think God ought to use or somebody who offends me or somebody who criticizes me or somebody dares to take umbrage with my ministry and I fall in outs with them maybe not outwardly in terms of, of arguing with them or writing them nasty letters and so forth but inside I just sort of check them off my list I 
say, you know. But you know, one of the most aggravating things is that I found out through the years is though if I check those people off my list, God doesn't check them off his. And he goes right on using a lot of people that I don't think he has any business using. And uses some of them in a lot more powerful way than he uses me and some of my friends. But that's God's choice. First point, God's choice. The sovereignty of God we're going to see in his choice. The second way we're going to see God's sovereignty is in the way God does things, God's ways. Not only is it sovereignty in his choice, but his sovereignty is revealed in his ways. A third way God's sovereignty is revealed is in his timing. And Robin's already touched on that in her talking about Moses and also in the, in the tremendous song they sing. The fourth uh, way God's sovereignty is shown to us is through God's reward. So we're going to talk about God's choice, God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign paradoxical ways, God's frustrating timing, and finally God's reward. The dictionary definition of sovereignty is this. Sovereignty means supreme power, indisputable ascendancy, absolute right and that's pretty good definition of God and his sovereignty he's supreme power his ascendancy is indisputable and he has the absolute right to do whatever he wants to do all right let's read a little out of the Genesis 37 the first 11 verses about the story of Joseph this is our first heading God's sovereign choice we're going to read now about God's sovereign choice of Joseph Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, this is not usually the character we see about Joseph. You have to understand he's a brash teenager right now. And he's not above you know, getting his brothers into trouble. He brought his father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented, he had made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now you talk about sibling rivalry. It's pretty intense in Jacob's home and house. Now, if that isn't bad enough, the jealousy is already there. The rivalry is already there. And Joseph isn't cleaning this thing. He's, he's doing his share of the thing to keep it stirred up, lying about his brother. Verse 5, but Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. <laughs> Man, in a story like that, designed to really make his brothers love him all the more. You know? His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Now let me pause and say something here to just to remind you already. This is God's sovereignty at work. The dream is real. The dream is a part of God's revelation to Joseph. Snotty-nosed teenager that doesn't get along with his brother and pampered by his father. You hear God in his sovereignty out of heaven reaches down and gives this young, immature kid this magnificent dream about his future. Even Joseph doesn't know what it's about. But it's the sovereignty of God, God's choice. And that, to make matters worse, he says, then he had another dream. And he told his brothers, listen, I had another dream. Don't you know they really waited with bated breath to hear the next dream? <laughs> I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And I suspect he probably sounded a little cocky when he said it. And then when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? 
And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the thing in mind. Didn't make his dad happy. But they didn't have to have special revelations from God to realize the significance of the dream. But in these dreams that Joseph is talking about, he's talking about his ascendancy. He's talking about his eventually ruling over the rest of the family. Now why would God reveal himself to a young man in a family that already had more problems than you could shake a stick at? Part of the problem was that those 12 sons of of Jacob were sons of four different mothers. Six of them were sons of uh, Leah, the wife that got pawned off on Jacob after he labored for Laban for seven years and then got the wrong gown. Two of the sons were from the wife he loved, Rachel. And two of the sons were of the handmaiden of uh, Leah and two of the sons were the handmaiden were of the sons of the handmaiden of Rachel. And so here these 12 sons had four different mothers. And they can just imagine how that added all to the sibling rivalry that was going on. You'd have to say that, that Jacob's house was a house that had a lot of problems in it. Why couldn't God choose somebody that had their act together? You know, some family that really had its act together. Well, If God had to wait to choose somebody that had his act together, who would he choose? (laughs) Who has his act together? God chooses just plain old ordinary mixed up people and plain old ordinary mixed up families. Why? Because he doesn't have any other kind to choose from. What I'm saying is, when we consider God's sovereignty, we have to understand is that nobody deserves to be chosen. None of us have any right to say, hey God, look at me. You know, I'm the guy that you ought to use in some great way. Nobody ever deserves to be chosen, and nobody is ever ready to be chosen. God chooses ordinary people. And thank God he does, because that makes us eligible. But the reason I think God, one reason why God does this, the reason why God can risk choosing ordinary people is because something happens when he chooses them. When God deigns to choose somebody with that choice comes the grace that's going to make them no longer ordinary but extraordinary. The reason God can feel safe in choosing almost anybody is because once the choice is made, they're no longer ordinary, they're extraordinary. Now, God knows that. It may take years, as we'll find out in this story. It may take years for uh, the world to know it or for other people to know it. But God chooses ordinary people, and it's his choice that makes us, when we are chosen by him, it's his choice that makes us extraordinary. That means our credentials are in him and not in ourselves. Why, then, did God choose Joseph? Out of that mixed up family, this arrogant young kid who lied about his brothers and who was his father's favorite, spoiled. Why did God choose Joseph? I'll give you a great revelation. God chose Joseph because God chose Joseph. (laughs) That's the revelation. That's God's sovereignty. The fact that God did it makes it right. Now, this is the thing that makes people kind of get uncomfortable and fussy and so forth, because what, it, what happens is we want to play God. We say, God, I don't understand why you did that. If I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, yeah, that's true, but you ain't God, and I'm not God. But we're always putting ourselves in the place of God, like the epitaph of the colonial uh, graveyard up in New England on this epitaph that said, Here lie I, Martin Elgebrod. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would have if I were God and you were Martin Algebra. <laughs> well, it's understandable. We want to play God. We say, God, if I were you, I wouldn't have done that. But you see, we're not God. And God chose Joseph because God chose Joseph. I guess.
guess it's been long enough safe talking about years ago when I was preaching over in Toronto. I was pastor in the Hillcrest Christian Church in Toronto for three years in uh, 1961 to 1964. So I was in the denominational church. And uh, down the street was the biggest United Church of Canada. And the pastor of that church when I was there was a man who had once been the pastor of my church. He was originally trained and ordained in my denomination. But he had tremendous ambition. And he had boasted from the time that he was in Bible college and seminary that someday he'd be the pastor of the biggest church in Canada. And when he got to be the pastor of the biggest Christian church in Canada, which was Hillcrest, which wasn't all that big, we had about, never did have more than about 450 members, but it was the largest of our denomination in Canada. We only had about 50 churches in all of Canada. But he got to be the pastor of that church. But he had these big ambitions and he couldn't stay in this church, so he transferred over to the United Church of Canada. And he went ahead and worked and planned his ambition and served, and eventually he ended up the biggest pastor, uh, the pastor of the biggest church in all of Canada, the biggest Protestant church, uh, Timothy Eaton United Memorial United Church there on uh, St. Clair Avenue, just a few blocks from the church I served. A uh, man's gone on to be with the Lord now a number of years ago, but, and it was 20 years when I was there, and I was a younger pastor, I was in my 30s. And I met him and attended the services sometimes Sunday night there and got him. And I don't say this to be critical of him particularly or to dishonor the ministry, but frankly, I never saw what he had that got him that job. Uh, you'd like to think that a man who'd be the pastor of the largest church in all of Canada would be a man of deep spiritual stature, profound spiritual wisdom, eloquent, you know, speaker and all this. What he was was a politician. And I used to fuss about God about that. I said, God, you know, but it didn't do any good. And I'm sure, and he built a great church. I mean, the church thrived under his leadership, at least statistically and so forth. But I used to get all upset. I said, God, that man doesn't have much spiritual depth. How do you ever get in a place like that? <laughs> and it's like God say to me, you know, that's none of your business. You know? But I had to finally acknowledge that that was God's choice. God's the one that did it. I might not approve of the way he turned out, approve of his... But, but it was wrong for me to judge him in the first place, and I have to ask you and God to forgive me because I sound judgmental now, I don't mean to be. But by my standards, the brother wasn't qualified, you see. But God didn't bother to ask me <laughs> why he took that man out of my denomination and, you know, and eventually made him a minister, the pastor of the greatest, the biggest church, Protestant church in, uh, in Canada. God's sovereignty. It doesn't do any good to argue with God his favorites. Did you know that? Now God is just, and God is righteous, God is holy, God is virtuous, God is pure, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is omni-everything, but God plays favorites. And it's all right because God does it. This is what it means to recognize the sovereignty of God. Now eventually, we all get to heaven and we can talk these things over with the Lord and so forth. We're going to see that it was perfectly just and perfectly right. It's only from our point of view that we feel that at times he's unjust or that he does things that are improper or that his choices are the wrong choices. And so this is just, you know, the reason we argue with God's sovereign choice is because uh, we tend to be rebellious and because we want to take the place of God. There's a little interesting thing over in John chapter 21 that where Jesus himself kind of sets Peter in his place when Peter tries to uh, uh, tries to uh, criticize Jesus about the Apostle John. This is after the resurrection. And this is right, we, we talked about this, uh, I think the other night when we were talking about, uh, last night wasn't we, were talking about regaining your lost love, your first love. And how Peter, after he, he, you know, after the resurrection, he jumps overboard from the fishing boat and gets reconciled to Jesus and so forth. And uh, gets reinstated. But what we stopped at short, I didn't read this part, but in verse 20, in chapter 21, it's after Jesus has reinstated Peter and has recommissioned him to follow him. Then Peter does a kind of a stupid thing. He turns, says, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John, who wrote the gospel here. The disciple whom Jesus loved uh, was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, indication seems to be that there might have been a little jealousy between Peter and John. But anyway, 
Peter is asking a question that he doesn't have any business asking. Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So John puts this little explanation in because apparently a, a legend or a rumor starts out then because of this conversation that John, the beloved disciple, would live forever or live till the Lord return. But the, but the rebuke that Jesus gave Peter is the thing that I wanted to point out. He said, uh, Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Peter, it's none of your business. You just follow me. So I think what God would say to us oftentimes when we are frustrated at his sovereignty, then what he would say to us basically is, you know, what's that to you? I will choose whom I want to choose. And I want to encourage you tonight to do at least what I try to do part of the time, and that is to stop trying to take the place of God and let God be God and try not to argue with his choices. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a precious group of ladies over in Germany, a Lutheran sisterhood called the Evangelical Sisters of Mary. And uh, I haven't heard much about them in recent years, but I used to get some books from them, and they used to they write beautiful little slogans and little prayers and so forth on little cards and they put them in all kinds of places and uh, they had these little teams of sisters in England and they had some in Arizona and they had some in the Holy Land. They put little beautiful little slogans in the Garden of Gethsemane and so forth. We had, we got these little, little bookmarks and done very beautifully in beautiful print and we had a number of those and one of them, one of our daughters put on a rough piece of uh, board and shellacked it and we kept it for a long time. I suppose we still have it someplace. But the thought in it expresses exactly what I believe, the way I believe God would have us uh, concerning some of these things where we feel like challenging God. And it was a little prayer, and it says this, Father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. Father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. God, you have my permission to be God. Heard the story one time about a guy who was always trying to take things into his own hands and challenging God. His friends were concerned about him, and one day they noticed how peaceful he'd suddenly become. And they couldn't understand it. One of them asked him, he said, Brother, such a great change in you. What happened? He said, Well, I tell you, I finally got so tired of being, you know, the, the mess that I was in. I went out and prayed to God, and I said, God, I resign as general manager of the universe. <laughs> And he said, you know, to my surprise, God accepted my resignation. And we both felt better ever since. God, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. Let God be God. God chose Joseph because God chose Joseph. God has the right to sovereignly choose whom he wants to. And we, find a lot, we can find a lot of peace if we'll just allow God to do that. And not get all bent out of shape when he chooses people that we don't understand or that we don't think would measure up or that they're not qualified or that they're not the kind of people that God uh, ought to choose. I remember the shock I got years ago when I was ministering in, uh, I went from Toronto, Canada, took another pastor in Pennsylvania over close to Youngstown, Ohio, in Sharon, Pennsylvania. And I was driving around doing my pastoral work one afternoon, we were doing pastoral visitation, driving my station wagon, had the radio on. And I flipped it onto the channel and I'd never heard about this person before. But uh, all I would say was a, some religious music and all at once this uh, voice came on, this announcer, and said, and now the young woman whose faith in God has stirred the hearts of America, we present to you Miss Catherine Kuhlman. Well, I've never heard of Catherine Kuhlman. I don't know Catherine Kuhlman. And now there was a long pause and all at once here was this woman's voice came on the phone. It's Catherine Kuhlman. Hello there. Have you been waiting for me? <laughs> I want you to know that just as long as you're happy, no matter how bad things get, in the end, everything's going to turn out all right. And I thought, my God, what is that? I thought that was strange. I hadn't even seen her then. <laughs> God chooses whom he wants to choose. She's a wonderful lady. If I had all kinds of biblical principles about what women ought to do and women ought to do, 
tremendous faith, miraculous ministry, messed up personal life in the early years of her life, but God used in a very sovereign way. Uh, not too long after that, I was uh, Dave Wilkerson started holding uh, youth rallies in her meetings down in Pittsburgh. He'd come down once a month and have a big youth rally in the Shrine Auditorium here in Pittsburgh. And thousands of young people come, people, church people come from all over that part of the country, getting buses and drive 500 miles. Well, we took some young people down from our church uh, one Sunday night who were just nominal Christians and to listen to Dave Wilkerson. A bunch of them got saved. That caused some problems in our church right there. Uh, but anyway, Dave and Captain Cooper, she was sponsoring his meetings. And I got acquainted with Dave Wilkerson that way and ended up writing a couple articles for his cross and switch blade magazine. He was invited up to Teen Challenge Center to visit him there. In fact, there was a time when I, I considered going to work for him. He wanted me to come. I was wanting to leave the pastor about then. He was, he was thinking about asking. We, he just, we discussed my coming to work on his staff. Well, one weekend when I was up there, it was a weekend, hey, we're going to dedicate the Teen Challenge Farm down in Marysburg, Pennsylvania. And it's when these rallies were going on. He invited Captain Cool to my to give me a dedication sermon. So Captain Cool went on a busload of her people. All were there at this farm. And I drove down from Teen Challenge at, uh, with uh, drove David's mother and some other people down in the car for this dedication service. I've never met Captain Cool. But before the thing was started, we were standing in the corridor of the, one of the uh, new buildings, and Captain Cool was being escorted around uh, by. Uh, uh, somebody, you know, see, and she just, she had an entourage behind her. She said, some of you remember, she's tall, slender, graceful figure, but she just, you know, very charismatic, flaming red hair. She had on long dangling earrings and bracelets up to her arms. She had on a real shocking pink sweater, suit, skirt, sweater, skirt to match, and just, you know, makeup right to the hill. Now, you have to understand Dave Wilkerson's out of an Assembly of God background where they don't go for that kind of stuff. But here she was, swooping by up and down the house, and I was standing talking to David, and he, she came up and David introduced me to her and she said hi and breezed on her way, you know, and David and I were standing there and I, I looked at David, you know. He was shaking his head as he watched as he watched her go. And he says, There she goes. <laughs> and he shook his head and said, She dresses like a Jezebel. <laughs> but then he looked at me and smiled and said, But she preaches sound doctrine. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But David had to struggle with it, but he knew, you know, that the gal was being used of God. God's sovereign choice. And I thought many times, why would God choose somebody like a Catherine Kuhlman? Well, God knows best. Better to choose somebody that looked like a Catherine Kuhlman than somebody like a Marilyn Monroe to do that kind of work. God's sovereign choice. Okay, we're going to talk about God's second point is letting God be God, about God's sovereign paradoxical ways. First, about Joseph again. Uh, by, defini by dictionary definition, a paradox, this is the definition of a paradox. A paradox is a situation exhibiting an apparently contradictory nature. There seems to be something basically contradictory in a paradox. Uh, and we'll list some of those in a minute, but let's first read about uh, the paradoxical ways of God with Joseph, what I call Joseph's declining fortunes. Uh, you know what happens is that uh, uh, because of the... Uh, hatred between Joseph and his brothers when one day when Joseph comes out to bring a message from his dad, they conspire, first of all, to kill him. And then one of his brothers intercedes, Reuben intercedes, says, no, no, don't kill him. So anyway, they capture him, they put him in this pit, uh, and then they, instead of killing him, they sell him to uh, an Egyptian caravan that comes along as a slave. And they take his beautiful, colorful coat, and they rip it all up and kill a uh, sheep and put the blood on it, and then send that back to his father, take it back to the father, say, you know, wild animals killed him. Uh, this shows their hatred. They just got rid of that upstart brother. All right, now, remember, God has given Joseph this tremendous dream about his destiny. Now, verse, now, chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites and taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. <laughs> what kind of prosperity is it when your brothers... First decide to kill you, and then if they don't do that, they sell you into slavery. This is prosperity. But that's what the scripture says. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Okay, God is prospering Joseph, even in this slave situation. 
The problem is Potiphar, who's probably an older man, has a sexy young wife who has a roving eye, and she takes a yin uh, after Joseph, and she tries to seduce him, and Joseph won't have any part of it. She grabs him and tries to pull him down on the bed, and when he won't go, she grabs his robe, and he has to slip out of his robe and beat it out of the house. And you know the old saying, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. So she's all upset because Joseph has rejected her advances, and so when Potiphar comes home, she accuses, tells Potiphar that Joseph tried to rape her. And she says, see, I've got his garment here. I just barely managed to escape. Well, Potiphar does the thing a loyal husband has to do. He has Joseph thrown into prison. I suspect, however, that Potiphar knew enough about his wife to know that it was probably a half-made-up story. Otherwise, he would have had Joseph. He would have killed Joseph. But anyway, he has him put into the prison. Uh, that's prosperity. God is prospering Joseph. All right. That's what the scripture says. So Joseph gets thrown into the prison. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. He, I think he still had a soft heart for Joseph because he didn't put him in the rough jail. He put him in one where the preferential prisoners were. King's baker and the king's cupbearer were in there. But while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now here's the paradox. What do you mean the Lord was with him and gave him success? The Lord was with him and gave him success. His brother sold him into slavery. The Lord was with him and gave him success. His, uh, his boss's wife tried to seduce him and he ends up in prison. He was with him and gave him success. What kind of success is this? That's what it means. It's a situation, a paradox. And a paradox is a situation which exhibits an apparently contradictory nature. If I was Joseph, I'd have said about this time, Lord, I would enjoy just about all this success I can stand. <laughs> God's ways are paradoxical. We've got to let God be God. The scripture is full of paradoxes. God's dealings with us as a people are paradoxes. The teachings of scripture oftentimes are paradoxical, seeming to have within them a contradiction, but what actually is there is the revelation of the truth of God. Divine paradox. Here's two or three scriptural examples. He who would be greatest among you, let him be servant of all. Whoever here would save his life shall lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Paradox. Jesus in his prayer, Father, I thank thee that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and reveal them unto babies. Paradox. God's paradoxical ways. Isaiah 55, remember, verses 6 to 9. Scripture says, God says, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The sovereignty of God. Let God be God. paradox of all for which we must be eternally grateful the greatest paradox of all is grace our sin for his righteousness he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's ways are paradoxical. The way up is the way down, or down the way up. Now, we already know, you see, we have the advantage here that Joseph didn't have. We know how the story comes out. We know what's in store. But Joseph didn't know at this time. God gives that young stripling of a lad, 17 years old, brash, arrogant, spoiled, this tremendous vision of his destiny in God that he can only dimly understand. And then proceeds in the fulfillment of that vision by having the boy's brother sell him into slavery, having him accused of rape, being thrown into prison. And God, the way up is first the way down. I think we ought to be encouraged by this in a sense because 
if we understand it because it can give us some patience and it can give us some courage when in the midst of our desire to serve God we find things not going well and we wonder where we've missed God and we wonder uh, you know why is it that we're not being blessed by God or if this is God's blessing who needs it you know but if we will be willing to let God be God and say father I do not understand thee but I trust thee then that can carry us through these things that are sometimes very painful that we have to go through. God's paradoxical ways. Okay, the third one is God's sovereign timing with Joseph. Now, the scripture tells us that Joseph was 17 when he first got this revelation from God. It also tells us that he was 30 years old when he finally began to rule over Egypt as Pharaoh's number two man. Timing is crucial with God. We need to remember that God is the author of long-range planning. God has the long perspective. He has eternity to work in. Now, part of our frustration with this is that we live in a now generation. We live in a generation of instant everything. You know, uh, instant coffee, instant credit, uh, instant everything. And we live in a society that, uh, that promotes that. The old Christian virtue of uh, old Christian virtue of uh, of what we call delayed gratification is almost non-existent. You can have it now. Buy it on credit. Uh, you go on your vacation now. Pay for it later. And we've raised a generation or two of people who don't have any understanding of thrift or of self-discipline. We got young people getting married, and the main thing they're interested in is how much credit they get. They want to have. Younger generation wants to have everything its parents took 20, 30, 40 years to achieve. They want it six months or a year and don't understand why they can't have it. Because we've abandoned the virtue of deferred gratification. That's why all of North America, our country, yours too, is in danger of going down the tube economically because of overspending itself. The United States facing over $200 billion a year deficits, of piling up deficits at the rate from, I was doing some work of research and was writing a book on Christian economics, which I've shelved right now, but someday I'll finish. But I started writing it in 1980, doing research on it. I was doing my early research when the indebtedness in the U.S. reached $1 trillion. And it took all the years of the history of the United States to find the indebtedness to reach $1 trillion over since 1770-something. And in the span of time since I first started writing that book in 1980 to now, the debt's almost $2 trillion. It's almost doubled again. And it's why? Because we've lost any sense of value about self-discipline and about uh, the virtue of delayed gratification. And sooner or later, that's all going to come crashing down on us. I don't need to get off on that. That's another story. Anyway, uh, what I'm saying is that tragedy results if timing is ignored. Timing is extremely crucial. This was, I couldn't help but smile as Robin was uh, giving her story about to Moses. You know, the problem with Moses was that he grew up in that, as she said, he's uh, he in the universities of Egypt and was living high on the hog while his uh, kinsmen were suffering under the, under the brutal taskmasters. And, uh, but because his mother had taught him about his destiny, he had a concern and a compassion for his people. And he goes out and sees this Egyptian soldier being uh, a Jew, and so he picks up a stick and kills the guy. Ron and I believe that stick became his rod. Uh, and then as she pointed out, you know, that's not very popular uh, thing to do over there in spite of his exalted position uh, Pharaoh banishes him he has to flee for his life and he's back there at 40 years on the back side of the desert God's sovereign time you see it wasn't that Moses wrong it's that he decided to be God's little helper and his timing was the thing that was off when Moses tried to do it in his own strength and his mind he took that stick and killed the Egyptian and got 40 years on the back side of the desert for his trouble but in God's timing, after 40 years and the time came when God was with him to send him back to do that thing, he took that same stick, that staff, and at the proper time raised it over the waters of the Red Sea and delivered two and a half million people out of Egyptian bondage. God's sovereign timing. Timing is crucial with God. Now, Joseph is having this struggle, as we said at the beginning of this section. Joseph was 17 when he got this first uh, vision about the dream, and he was 30 when he finally begins to rule. Now, he's still in the, he's still in the jail, but uh, the jailer has turned everything over to him because the favor of God's on him. 
And there's these two guys in the, uh, in the jail with him, the king's cupbearer and the king's baker, who have dreams that can't be interpreted. Uh, and so Joseph interprets the dreams for them. It uh, says the, the dream of the cupbearer means indicated he was going to be restored to the grace of the king. The baker's dream indicated he was going to be killed. But anyway, the word gets to uh, uh, those, those dreams come true. And uh, down in, later on in the 39th verse here, let's see, uh, let's read some. It's in the 40th chapter. Let's read some of this about the cupbearer and the baker. These two guys have the dreams, and so they, he sees that they're dejected, and he says, he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him, says, why are your faces so sad today? This is verse 7. We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches, and soon it was budded, and it blossomed, and its clusters ripened under grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days, and within three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you'll put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now get this in verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in prison. Now it's true God's favor was on Joseph, but Joseph was human enough to say, Man, I'm still here unjustly. I want out of this hole. And so when you get back to Pharaoh, you can imagine how Joseph's spirit left when he realized that he could interpret this guy's dream, and the fellow would be restored right to next to Pharaoh's throne. He was the cupbearer. You know what a cupbearer was for the king? He's a guy that would taste the wine before the king drank it in order to see if it was poisoned. Uh, it was a not, not a very good job to have, but in one way it was a very favorable job. So Joseph knew he was going to be right next to the king, to, the, to uh, Pharaoh, and he said, Look, when you're back there next to the Pharaoh's throne, for Pete's sake, tell him about me and present my case to him and get me out of here. So even though God's favor was on him, you understand, Joseph wasn't being very patient about the whole thing, and that's understandable. Well, then he gives the interpretation of the baker's dream when the baker's dream indicated he's going to die, and sure enough, that happened. Uh, now, on the third day, verse 20, was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials, and he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup to Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. Now look at this sad verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. All right. The, Joseph was in prison from 17 in the time he was 30. Now he was on in all of this jail, I'm not in prison all that time, but by the time he got the vision. And he's been in jail for quite a while when he makes this plea. And 11 years will have passed before, till this time when he interprets, 11 years from the time he was 17 till the time he interpreted these two dreams and asked, you know, to be remembered to the Pharaoh. And I'm sure he must have expected, as soon as the cupbearer was up there back with the Pharaoh, uh, Joseph must have thought every time he heard footsteps coming down, the jail steps, it would be somebody coming to get him out because of the wonderful favor that he'd done from the cupbearer. But it didn't work that way. Two years passed, another two years. Joseph was 28 when he interpreted those dreams. Became 29, became 30, two more birthdays in that stinking prison where God was prospering him. Now, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream, and he was standing by the Nile, and you know the story, we won't read all that, but he has this dream about the, the uh, seven lean cattle coming out of the river and eating up the seven fat cattle, and then there's the dream about seven uh, lean ears of corn eating up seven uh, fat ears of corn, and nobody could interpret the dreams. Said so verse 8, in the morning his mind was troubled, and so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt, but no one could interpret them for him. Two years had gone by. Now look at verse 9. 
Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Ay, yay, ay, I remember that young man Joseph. Two stinking years gone by. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard, and each of us had a dream the same night, and each had a dream, had a meaning of its own, and now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream, and things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought to the, from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Gives you a little idea, exactly presentable after those years in that dungeon. And so then the Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. Or he says he has a dream. And to Joseph, it's a beautiful statement, verse 16. I, he says, but I've heard it said that you can, when you hear a dream, you can interpret. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so then Pharaoh tells him the dream about the sleek cattle and the scrawny cattle and about the fat ears and the lean ears. And he says, the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up after they did are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine follows it will be severe, so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and that God will do it soon. So Joseph interprets the dream. But notice now he doesn't stop there. Joseph not only interprets the dream, but under the anointing God that's on him, he reveals to Pharaoh an economic plan to handle the situation. This young man who was a slave and who was accused of rape and was thrown into the prison uh, and who has no experience in politics or statesmanship or economics or anything else, finds himself in the presence of Pharaoh and because of the power of God upon him in this favored time. Now, he not only foretells or, or, or explains or interprets the dreams, he gives the, the Pharaoh an email. He goes on and says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. And they should collect all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. And the food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man and one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Well, God's sovereign timing. Joseph thought for sure it would have happened at least two years before. But it had to wait until Pharaoh had the dream. If the cupbearer had taken Joseph's case before Pharaoh, before Pharaoh had the dream, Joseph might have been released from prison. But the sovereign purposes of God would have been thwarted. The thing we have to remember about God is that he is sovereign and that all kinds of things are being worked out among his people all the time. And one of the reasons, oftentimes, why things don't break the way we think they ought to when we think they ought to is because we only see a tiny fraction of the picture. And often even when we're praying for people in certain situations and we don't know why a situation doesn't yield. Are we praying for two people with the same problem and one gets the answer and the other one doesn't? We wonder, well, God, why are you playing favorites and so forth? Well, we don't know the whole situation. We don't know how many circumstances need to be altered or redeemed or changed or uh, how many people's attitudes and minds and emotions need to be altered in any given situation 
practically every troubled situation that we ever pray about involves more than just the one person. Not only involves his destiny and God, it may involve around his family and a whole lot of other people. All kinds of circumstances that only God knows. And in God's sovereignty, all of these things are being worked out. And so when the answer seems to be delayed, or the answer comes in a way or in a form that we don't understand, rather than saying, God, why did you do this? Say, Father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. So, finally, in God's sovereign timing, Joseph was lifted out of that prison and overnight became the number two man in Egypt. This brings us to the fourth point about God's sovereign reward. Joseph went from jailbird to ruler of Egypt overnight. Not only predicting the famine, but with the economic plan and then with Pharaoh's recognition that the favor of God was on him. From jailbird the ruler overnight. I tell you, when God decides a time to favor a man, it'll happen. When God decides it's time to exalt you or to lift you up or to bless you in a specific way towards something that you've been praying for, it'll happen. But it'll happen in God's time and not in yours. Now, it's interesting, with Joseph beginning to rule Egypt, there's the seven years of abundance, and then there, the famine starts after it, and during those seven years of abundance, they say the grain, uh, so much stuff was, uh, well, here it is, let's read in the, chapter 41, beginning with verse 47, or 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt and during the seven years of abundance the land produced plentifully and Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities and each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Just an unbelievable harvest year after year after year and there they were conserving 20% of it every year. Well, then in prediction of the fulfillment of the second dream, the famine hit. Crops began to fail. Now, you have to understand in a famine, that doesn't mean that absolutely no food grew, but it just means that the yield drop may be half, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent. Major crop failures of various kinds. So that there was no way the country could have supported itself had it not been for all of these tremendous surpluses. Well, it's not only in Egypt, it gets up into the Holy Land, into Palestine too, where Israel, where Joseph's family is, his brothers and dad. And uh, two years into the famine, uh, Jacob sends some of the brothers down to buy food in Egypt. And uh, then in chapter 42, uh, this is when the brothers go down to Egypt. Verse beginning of verse six, it says six, verse six, it says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. And so when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And look at verse nine. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Then, apparently, these early dreams that he'd had as a 17-year-old lad, that the time would come when he would rule over his family, had been wiped from his memory, but now suddenly seeing, putting all the circumstances together here by God's uh, miraculous purpose, he's, uh, for all practical purposes, the ruler of Egypt, and now suddenly here his brothers come, sent from his father in great need. Then he remembered his dream. Uh, I want to uh, read verses, uh, over, turn with me over to chapter 45, and we're going to read verses 4 to 11. I'm trying to skip through the story because it's so long. You know what happens? He gives them the grain, sends them back home, but makes the youngest son stay with them. And then they use that food up, and they come back a second time. And uh, verse 40, chapter 45 is the chapter in which Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. And 
Let's read those early verses of that chapter. Joseph could uh, no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence, so that there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when he had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. You can underline the next phrase. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. God's sovereign purpose. And God's sovereign reward. Joseph got his first revelation of about God's destiny for his life, we could say in a sense at this point, when God chose him, when he was 17. But what God had in store for him was not fulfilled until he was 30, and he went through all kinds of long, tragic experiences before that took place. And even after he became 30 years old and was ruler, he still did not understand what was going on. He ruled for the first seven years, became 37. When the good years ended, Went on into the next two years, his 38th and 39th birthday, before his brothers finally came. And then the whole mysterious, paradoxical purpose of God that he had in mind with Joseph from the beginning was revealed to Joseph. And he said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God is sovereign. Let God be God. Well, I want to close with just a little bit of application for us about these lessons, this lesson on sovereignty of God in Joseph's life and to apply it to ourselves. And I really believe from the bottom of my heart that every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ are the objects of God's device. You're not here tonight by chance. You're not a Christian just by some accident. It's true that you had to respond in faith when you heard the gospel. Nevertheless, what Jesus said to his disciples is true about us. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. That you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. You know, that ought to give us a tremendous sense of security. What some writers have called the security of the beloved. There's a sense in which that predestination is true. Now, I don't want to push it too far, but there's a sense in which we are chosen by God. And because we are, we ought to have that security. And Scripture says nobody can snatch us out of God's hands. We could we'd be stupid enough, we can jump out if we want to. But we need to remember that we, like Joseph and like the disciples, are objects of God's sovereign choice. Secondly, we need to remember that we, like Joseph, are being shaped by God's paradoxical ways. God, I don't understand why you're doing this with me and my family. I don't understand why you allowed this to happen. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. But, Father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. And we have to live out a lifetime of learning God's ways. God's ways aren't our ways. So not only are we objects of God's sovereign choice, we are shaped by his paradoxical ways. The third point is that we are matured by God's sovereign time. Moses' vision for redeeming his people was great and was from God, but he was way out of God's timing when he took the stick and killed the Egyptian. But 40 years on the backside of the, back the desert, as Robin pointed out, everything fell off and fell out that could while he got humbled by the Lord until he was finally in a position where God could reveal himself to him in the burning bush. We are matured by God's sovereign time. And then, thank God, the fourth point is that like with Joseph, at the proper time, we will be 
rewarded by sovereignly by God at the right time. I want to share just a couple of minutes of personal testimony about this because I'm always reminded of of Alice and Mine's experience in this regard. From the time uh, we were baptized in 1952, uh, I was already in Bible college, in the denominational Bible college I was serving, and I, I had a, some kind of a sense of destiny. I, didn't, I wasn't happy in the denomination. I, one of the reasons I'd get upset about unspiritual people seeming to accomplish uh, things in, in the kingdom of God was that I had a a kind of a spiritual hunger and a spiritual openness to the miraculous and to the things of God and I was chafing and impatient through that. And that led us into the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In those early years after we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, there were prophecies spoken over us from various conferences that indicated that there was a tremendous ministry ahead for us, ahead for me. And yet I went ahead and stayed in the denomination from 1952. I finished Bible college, seminary, was ordained and served denominational churches from 1952 till 1967. Fifteen years, in one sense, on the backside of the desert concerning what my eventual destiny was God. And it was a frustrating kind of time. Now, I wasn't out of the will of God in that time. God was shaping me for his purpose. I was gaining experience in dealing with people. Alice and I were having our children and beginning to see them grow up in all those years. And then in 1967, I finally finished my first book, Face Up With a Miracle, uh, which was my own personal testimony about the baptism. And it got published, and suddenly all kinds of doors began to open for ministry. I will, never will forget the, uh, uh, within two weeks after that book was published, and I was just a pastor over here in, in, in Sharon, Pennsylvania, uh, a small church, nobody knew anything about me. And that book got published, and uh, some lady missionaries in Thailand had, the book had been uh, uh, announced in a, magazine put out by the little publisher out in California that published the book, and they'd ordered a pre-publication copy. The book had only been out a couple of weeks, or maybe a month, when I got a letter from these missionaries in Thailand. And they'd gotten two copies of the book and began to spread it around to uh, English-speaking natives in Thailand and also to American servicemen on a big Air Force base in Thailand. And uh, they had been praying and working with these people, and, and the Holy Ghost Revival had broken out on the Air Force base and uh, in the groups that they were working with with the Thai natives. And these missionary sisters wrote me this beautiful letter telling me how wonderfully my book was being used to further that revival. People were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit by reading the book. I got their letter in my church office and I sat there and wept because I suddenly realized my ministry had been extended halfway around the world. And I began to realize then that the things that I'd sensed in God about our future and the things that had been prophesied over us were going to come true after all. Not when they were prophesied in 1952, but they began to happen in 1967, 1968, and have continued to happen in the 18 years since uh, we stepped out in faith and left the denomination. And uh, as a result of that, in the first year that I was out in this broader ministry, God rewarded that ministry in a way that we saw more results in that one year than I'd seen in a decade of ministry before. Now that's not because we are anybody special and that's not because we have more talent or more speaking ability or more than a lot of other people. It's not by work or not by merit or not by talent or not by ambition or not by ability. It's by God's choice. It's by God's paradoxical ways. It's by God's timing that we finally come into God's reward. And for us, it's been a continuing reward. So I want to close just to remind all of us here tonight that we're not here by chance. We're part of a tremendous tapestry that's being woven by God, a tapestry that we can call the kingdom of God. All kinds of beautiful colored threads being woven into that great tapestry. And each one of us is one of those threads. We often can't see but just a tiny little fraction of what's taking place. And you may be sitting home on your back porch wondering if you'll ever be used of God in any significant way. But don't you ever forget for a moment that you're God's choice. And that he has a purpose for your life. And that if you'll yield to him, you'll be molded by his paradoxical ways.
And you'll be subject to all kinds of frustrations as the months and years go on, as God works his sovereign timing into your life. But it's all toward the end in which you and all of us will experience God's sovereign reward. Let God be God. God chose Joseph because God chose Joseph. God chose you because God chose you. Father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. Amen.